Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of season 2 of The Shed Wireless. Coming up, short, fat, tall, skinny, hairy, bald, in the shed, it's welcome one and all. We debut the brand new Australian Men's Shed Association jingle, guaranteed to get stuck in your head. Yeah, we can do it all at the men's shed. Short, fat, tall, skinny, hairy, bald. In the shed, it's welcome one and all. Share the skills you know. And the genius behind the jingle is none other than the legendary Australian pop star, John Paul Young. He has gone into business with his equally talented son in their shed, and we will drop by for a yarn with the dynamic duo shortly. We're off to the nation's capital to hear about Rocking Horse Restoration and the Blessed Brotherhood of Belconnen Men's Shed. Those monkey farming grass holes ripping Stuart will have a few choice words about swearing and we'll ask the doc about carrots, losing your license and eyesight. All that and a whole lot more ahead in this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney, and we are joined by the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, David Helmers. Welcome. Hello, Mr. Aaron Carney. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. I'm I'm struggling to imagine the Australian men's shed movement as one thing at the moment. They would have pulled the doors closed and then opened them again in South Australia. Albury can go to Wodonga and I think northern New South Wales can go to Queensland, but I'm not sure if Sydney can yet. It's a complicated picture, isn't it? It is. Open one day, close the next, <laughs> just revolving doors, mate. Um, yeah, the poor guys in South Australia, opening, closing, opening, um, yeah, a bit all over the place. But, you know, it looks like we're starting to get a bit of certainty back to it. And, look, I give full credit where it's due. There's, you know, the guys in the sheds um, are really taking, you know, the, all the disruptions in that world. It's like they're getting acclimatised to it, I suppose. It's interesting that you say that because I know I read in a lot of business communications they're saying so many things that were in the too hard basket are now a daily occurrence and I think that we've all become a lot more nimble. Things that we thought were too hard to do or oh, we couldn't possibly motivate that to happen in time, we're making happen, right? Because just needs must. Exactly. And look, we even look at how this program evolved. It was meeting a need that was something that we had thought of before but never really thought, ah, it may work, it may not, or you know, time and everything else, but it was a reaction to the situation. So we met those needs and look at the success we've had now. Who would have thought? And I think across the business world, the exact same thing's happening. People are making reactions you know to the situation and yeah discovering a bit of a can-do attitude yes we can do that we can work remotely and don't need all that travel and we don't need this and we don't need that so a changing world definitely and i remember the conversation uh, you and i had right at the beginning there and you just you described it to me as maybe this is a bit of a speed bump that we all needed to have along the way 
couldn't agree more. We've recalibrated a few of our instruments, I think, in 2020. Mm. And I should say this is officially the last episode of Season 2, but if you stay listening, we might have a surprise or two about what comes next. Uh, A little bit of housekeeping. Any dispatches from HQ? I know we're closing in on the AGM. Yes, we have the AGM on the 3rd of December. Everything's in order there. You know, all the proxies have come in. Everything's going along quite swimmingly with that, actually. Um, we'll be putting it out on a web broadcast for those who want to view it at the AGM this year and can't get to it. But, you know, we put out in the communications if they got a regist- they register to view the AGM, but they still will require, if they wish to vote, to put in their proxy forms. So that's all in order and personally I'm looking forward to getting on with the Christmas break. It's been a long, long year, Aaron, and get a few of these home renovations done and um, hopefully improve my golf game over the Christmas break. Wishful thinking, I know, I know. (laughs) There are many things to hope for in 2021 and that is just one of them. Hey, I've got to talk about the event at Raymond Terrace Men's Shed because uh, we'll be hearing more of the jingle shortly we'll be interviewing jpy and what a magical dude he is but speaking of magical you guys had a great time tell the story the whole story goes back you know some time when we first you know contacted jpy and his son danny about writing a jingle for AMSA and men's sheds in general has been a long disgusting we've often had sheds asking or submitting ideas and in the complexities of the world of copyright material and things like that it had to be an original and we're very honoured to have JPY and Danny come along and write the jingle which you quoted a few lines from in the um, in your introduction there and uh, it all came about with a meeting I had with JPY and a crazy idea mm. I had, and I still remember going out to his place and running the idea by him and said, mate, you can shoot me down at any stage. Yeah, this came to me late at evening after a few relaxing ales and drew that, um, yeah, that little synergy there with his hit song, Yesterday's Hero. And, (laughs) you know, a lot of the guys could relate to that. As, you know, as we all know, as we get older, we do feel a bit like we were yesterday's hero. And, yeah, put that to the guys in the the terrace shed to participate and to John and everyone thought yeah what a great Mm -hmm. idea the concept grew out of that and look the day we were out there was fantastic and hats off to John you know he's a lovely guy and when he got there the band was actually rehearsing yesterday's hero you know in their band practice session and they've got a fantastic band out there so John did the unexpected or what you probably could say was the logical thing for him to do march straight on into the shed picked up the microphone and you know sung this performed the song with the boys and I think that led on to another hour jam session afterwards so yeah we started filming an hour behind what we were supposed to do but everyone had a had a great day it was, it was a very nice day I shouldn't be surprised but I am the jingle is absolutely world class it's as good as anything I've ever heard it's an earworm it's a great earworm it um, gets it gets in the head there and um, yeah we had a lot of jokes on the on the day with it and um, yeah it, it is world class <laughs> it really does when I first heard it I thought yeah that's that's good and the problem was, you know, 12 hours later, a day later, two days later, it was still going around in my head. And I thought, yeah, that is what a jingle should be. And it actually captures 
the heart of the movement as well. It actually gets right down to what we stand for. Exactly. It's, you know, talking about the guys, you know, in the shed and what it's all about. And as we, one of the briefs was, we wanted to present within that jingle, you know, had to capture what the shed movement was about, but it also wanted to, we needed to capture that happy, fun atmosphere of a men's shed as well, embrace that. And that's what we wanted to promote both through the jingle and the accompanying music video that's going with it. The video you will be able to see via our various channels shortly. The jingle you will hear very soon here on the Shed Wireless and stand by for a really nice chat between a dad and a son in the same industry dealing with COVID, dealing with the changing generations. You'll enjoy that when it comes up in just a few moments' time. So I guess we should get on with the show. Let's get it rolling, mate. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy. With The Shed Wireless. My daughter was sharing some of her music with me recently. She's just become a teenager. And she said, oh, I'm not going to play that one, Dad. It has some words you won't appreciate me hearing, which is curious because obviously she listens to it when I'm not there. But I said, uh, look, I don't particularly care if you hear those words. I just don't want to hear you use them. We were on a long drive. And on that drive, it got me to reflecting about swearing and bad language and what if any offence there is in bad language in 2020. I'm prepared to say that AMSA Men's Health Officer Stuart Torrance is always good for a bloody interesting chat. Hello, sir. How are we going, Aaron? Yeah, good, thank you. See, once upon a time, bloody was a proper swear word, whereas (laughs) that barely raises the pulse these days. It doesn't raise the pulse at all. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. My, My father is a lay preacher. And I remember one time uh, he was preaching from the pulpit and he was getting quite animated and he banged his Bible and he says, bloody swords. And I sat up, <laughs> bolt upright, going, my goodness, Dad's, <laughs> Dad's sworn in the pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, same, same, only different. I can't remember exactly the circumstances, I don't know whether it was like a load of clean washing that a coffee got knocked into or some some sort of domestic disturbance of that nature. And I can remember my dad saying, oh, for F's sake. And I was, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe 11. Yeah. And same thing. It was like the heavens parted. And I thought, oh, my God, my dad said that word. You know, to be fair, in the 40 years since, I think I've only ever heard him say it three or four times. But nonetheless... Uh, It was a a remarkable moment. And again, I don't think I was offended is the right word, but I was certainly shocked. Mm. And I mean, what about you? You and I hang out in various capacities. I don't think you're a swearer, are you? I can't readily recall. I do drop the odd expletive if I get a little excited or um, (laughs) wound up about a particular subject. But... (laughs) Aaron, one of the things one of the things I've I've started to really enjoy, which is acknowledgement of country, and paying respect to elders past and present. And the the word that jumps out there is respect. I remember when I started with sheds uh, 11, 12 years ago, 
uh, going into some of the few shed, first few sheds that I ever went to, hearing the comment, there's ducks on the pond, that simply meant there was a female present and to hold your tongue. No swearing, fellas. You know, there's, there's ladies around. Shut your uh, locker door and hide the um, pin-up uh, and all them sort of things. But it was respectful. And now you walk down the street and you'll you'll hear school kids uh, F in this and C in that and, and carrying on like chooks when there's children uh, close by, when there's elderly people, when there's ladies around. There seems to be a huge loss of respect for how we represent ourselves uh, across the community. I know a lot of the older guys see it and it uh, riles them a bit. Um, but I, I really do think we're losing something and the acknowledgement of country, I, I think, is uh, or bides well in sort of restoring that respect uh, into the conversation. See, I pride myself on having lightly held opinions, right? Like I think about things and I might form an opinion on them, yeah. but very few are a hill that I'm prepared to die on, right? I, yeah. I admit when it comes to swearing, at first glance, my attitude to things is full of inconsistencies, right? For not the least of them being that I believe in gender equality, but I'd be way less likely to swear in front of a woman than I would in front of a man. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But the deeper that I think about it, the less I think they are inconsistencies and the more it comes back to the point that you made. Mm -hmm. If you and I are rattling around in your truck and telling a bawdy joke to each other and there's some swear words get used, mm -hmm. then that is, A, not an act of disrespect to you on my behalf. And yeah. B, it's perhaps the opposite of that. It's respecting you enough to take you into my confidence and to speak plainly, right? I like that. However, if I do that same bawdy joke in front of my grandmother, I know that will be confronting and offensive to her. Mm. To put it in your parlance, that would be disrespectful to her. Yeah. And so it actually isn't an inconsistency. It's actually more like you don't wear stubbies to church. Mm. <laughs> Women cover their head in Muslim countries. It's more about showing yeah. respect to the people who are around you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like I, I'm, you know, uh, a person of the world, and 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 hanging around sheds, you hear all sorts of language. Of course. The only thing that sort of rubs me up the wrong way is is if they take the Lord's name in vain. Mm. Um, and I will pull someone up on on that and and ask respectfully if they would refrain or or find another word to use. Mm. We're not allowed to use the N word, for instance. However, people in that community use it all the time. Yes. And you, you hear rappers using it, et cetera, et cetera. The gay community has done the same with certain words. Likewise. So it, that those words, that terminology belong to those people uh, and they have the right to use them. They've been abused by them, et cetera, et cetera, for years and years. So it, the words belong to that community. It's disrespectful of me to, to, to go in and start using terminology that is possibly going to offend somebody else. And I think this is where that respect comes in. And I do see it a lot in the sheds, like I said, 
yeah, they use bad language and they clown around with, with, with each other, but you see that respect come. As soon as the, you know, someone senior, a politician, and uh, a female comes into the shed, the boys just behave themselves for that half an hour. And it doesn't kill anybody to, to be respectful in that regard. No, and they may well find themselves six weeks, six months, six years down the track that they have a different relationship with that person and it might be acceptable under different circumstances, you know, but in the first instance, you owe people that respect. I do have an additional theory attached to this. So if you can imagine a graph for me of shock and time, okay, and once upon a time, bugger was a shocking word. Now you would hear a five-year-old say that. Uh, well, it was in famously in that TV ad, remember? Bugger, yeah. bugger, bugger. Yeah. Bloody as well has been yeah. defanged over time. Yeah. Maybe a hundred years ago, that was a pretty offensive term. Mm-hmm. Now, not so much. I probably slide in the generation where the S word was borderline okay. The F word was off the charts and the C word never even came onto the radar virtually, right? Now I think that the S word has moved almost to the bloody category, right? Yeah. The F word has become the S word and the C word is now the ultimate shock. And so I'm only going through that to illustrate my point that words get redefined for their shock value over time. So if you're 75, you may have a different response to a word than a 17-year-old. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Does that make it right? Uh, Well, it goes back to your original and compelling point that if that 17-year-old gives a damn, Mm -hmm. damn would have been a word once as well. (laughs) 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 If that that 17-year-old gives a damn about the 75-year-old, he Mm -hmm. either holds his fire or at least earns his stripes before using that terminology. Or he cops a set of stripes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's a conversation for another day. We're not allowed to do that anymore either, are we? So. <laughs> uh, isn't it weird? You, you can't correct anymore, but you can, you know, fly off the handle and, and use all sorts of language under the sun. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to be all right. I, I think one of the things that irks me is the movies, and I've, I've mentioned it before, uh, but I, I listened to a, a show called Dry Bar, which is comedy, but it's clean comedy. I can be sitting enjoying a movie and also all of a sudden the, the, the lead actor comes out with uh, Jesus Christ uh, and uses it as a curse word. And it just grates me to the point where I will actually switch that program off because it, it really is offensive to me. And yet I know other people that will watch that all through and they'll talk about the show and it was almost like the word was never used because it doesn't have the same shock effect uh, across the board. I think what I keep coming back to, Aaron, is, is that respect uh, for each other. I hope respect never goes out of um, fashion vogue a conversation for another day, but something that has never, ever, ever made sense to me is a movie comes out of Hollywood and you can't see somebody's nipple because it's so offensive 
but in the next frame, they're so happy to show you someone getting their face blown off with a shotgun. It's never made any sense to me that that nudity can be so offensive and violence can be so inoffensive. So, Aaron, just the same movie shown in the States will not show you that nipple. No, I know, right? That's how I know I'm European, not American. (laughs) (laughs) If it's a choice between a nipple or a gun, give me a nipple any day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was blown away. I was was stuck in a motel in in, uh, LA and um, I had hours and hours and hours to burn. So I thought, I'll watch a movie, switch the TV on. Show came on and I went, oh, I've seen this before. (sighs) What the hang, I'll, I'll watch it again. They had a, a few good scenes in it, <laughs> and they weren't there. And it was like, wow. <laughs> and that's what, you know, brought me to it. It's like they make it for a mass audience, and then they cut it all out for themselves but send their rubbish overseas. You know Snakes on a Plane? Are you familiar with that film? Oh, I've heard about it, yeah. Yeah, and Samuel L. Jackson, a famous swearer, is in that. Yeah. Right? Every second word is a swear word. <laughs> I saw it in Malaysia where there is no swearing. Yeah. And he <laughs> he actually uses the phrase, it's time to get these monkey fighting snakes off this Monday to Friday plane. <laughs> <laughs> Seems not offensive at all. <laughs> Actually, it makes it a comedy, exactly. doesn't it? Exactly. Great to talk to you as always, mate. Likewise, Aaron. Take care, mate. Time for our Shed in the Spotlight. First up, show and tell. Let's showcase a project or product from our Shed. We're heading to beautiful Belconnen in the nation's capital for our Shed in the Spotlight this episode. Belconnen Community Shed's membership manager is Claudio Alero. Hello, Claudio. How are you, Aaron? I am very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on the Shed Wireless. And you're going to tell us a little bit about some of the projects that are being worked on in and around the Belconnen Community Shed at the moment. What's occupying everyone's attention? Well, we've, we've got a, a number of projects uh, on the go at the moment. Uh, we're doing um, some uh, restoration on uh, toys, in particular a rocking horse, which was uh, built uh, by a chappie some uh, 50, 60 years ago for his uh, daughter. And now the daughter is passing it on to her daughter. So it's, uh, it's an exciting project and uh, one which uh, obviously we get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of it. There's a little bit of pressure attached there as well. You you want to get that right, right? <laughs> Definitely, and I'll be <laughs> honest with you, uh, the biggest challenge we had uh, was doing the main. The, uh, the chappie that did it some uh, 60 years ago uh, just used it, used uh, mops, and uh, he used fencing, fencing wire to, uh, to attach him to the horse. So that's... Uh, was a bit exciting and interesting to see what tools were being used. Um, the challenge now was uh, to see whether or not we would use something uh, like a mop, which uh, I thought, oh no, maybe we should use some hessian rope. Mm. That didn't work out very well because uh, it keeps on breaking down. 
unraveling. Unraveling and, you know, yeah. getting threads everywhere. And and uh, my, uh, my wife came to pick me up at the shed and said, no, 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 that's, that is definitely a no-no. <laughs> uh, so, um, but uh, now we're, we're heading down the path of uh, either using uh, a mop, believe it or not, doing it a little bit different. Uh, the other option which we may look, look into is if we can actually get uh, real horse hair, but we haven't made that final decision yet. And you said some sort of fencing wire attaches it in. Can you walk me through that? I can't visualise that. Well, there were, I don't know if you can imagine um, the, uh, the, the nails, the U-type nails that uh, are used to hold uh, or we used to hold fencing wire onto the fencing post. Mm. Quite, uh, quite lethal uh, bits of uh, steel. Yeah, that's what was used. That's what was used. They, it was extremely well done. Uh, the chappy that uh, that did the uh, the original uh, rocking horse did an, an exceptionally good job. Um, so apart uh, apart from from those uh, fencing nails, uh, everything else we just literally reuse. We reuse the old uh, screws and everything so that it's as uh, it's as much as it was built back some sixty years ago. Lovely. Let's just go back to the moment when it arrived in the shed there. What sort of condition was it in and how did you go about tackling the project? When it arrived, the the only um, visible um, problems were basically degradation in in the wood, especially in the rocking part and um, basically, you know, other superficial damage from uh, where glue had uh, given way. Um, so, but apart from that, it was in quite good condition. The, the mop that had been used, that um, the owner had put uh, plastic bags over that because that was deteriorating very badly. It basically was just dust coming off it. So, uh, the first step was um, effectively we took, you know, photographs of it to make sure that, uh, uh, we knew where pieces fitted when we put it back together. Uh, removed uh, the the old um, mop uh, and threw that away. And uh, we actually kept the uh, nails just in case we we wanted to reuse them. And um, after that, it was a matter of uh, taking the uh, the unit apart and uh, uh, starting off, you know, cleaning it up. Uh, sanding it back a little bit and making sure that uh, uh, we, we, we had a look at what uh, paint was being used, whether it was oiled or whether they used the Estopol and uh, Estopol had been used. So we made sure that we were using the same type um, paint base uh, to, to paint it again. Uh, once that was done, um, we reassembled it, uh, put it back with the old uh, screws again, and uh, now working on the main to see how we're going to um, make a good job with that part of it. Did the nails and screws go back in clean? Did they do their job or did you have to renovate them or fill in some way? Because it would seem to me that once you take it apart, it wouldn't necessarily go back together again. The uh, We made sure that everything was labelled properly so that uh, mm-hmm. we knew exactly which pieces went back to which pieces. So the, where the screws were, some of the, um, because there were the, uh, uh, the flat uh, the straight blade screws, not the Phillips head screws. So uh, some of the um, the actual, some of those were a little bit burred. So we did have uh, equivalent brass screws here that we could replace 
with those. Uh, we did clean out uh, the threads to make sure that the screws went in well and uh, obviously having labelled everything, uh, all the uh, wood pieces went back into the right position. So that went, um, the reassembly was pretty straightforward actually. That's fantastic. The woods is still in good nick, is it? The wood was in good nick. Um, where, the, uh, where the old fencing um, uh, nails were used, uh, that uh, unfortunately they were all hidden under the main and so on. So uh, we're able to fill those gaps up and uh, that, that'll, that'll come up pretty well. You won't notice that those holes have been filled. Instead of using the fencing nails, which I'll give back to the owner, um, we will use screws there because that'll come up better and if they need to do any maintenance in the future, it'll be easier to do. What colours is it? It's uh, just estopole, just uh, straight out wood colour. It's uh, made of pine. And the saddle? The saddle is a, um, a vinyl saddle and that was still in good condition. So that, all that required was effectively some um, uh, oil uh, just to, you know, to, to clean it up and, uh, and make it look um, nice again and healthy. So we didn't have to replace uh, any, of those, uh, any of the saddle. So that, that was really fortunate because that could have been a problem. Yeah, and there's a bridle on it too that was in good nick, I assume. The bridle is missing. I don't know what he wants to do. When the owner comes and picks it up, uh, we'll see if he wants a bridle put there. I'm not sure how he wants to do that. What's the story of how this project found you? What uh, Generally what happens is you, you have the community seem to be aware that the Menshed uh, is, uh, is uh, available and we do do these projects and they do get in touch with us and we're very fortunate in that, uh, in that respect. Uh, the only criteria is that if they bring any work here, first of all, it has to be something that we feel comfortable that we can uh, do a good job and uh, we can manage. And uh, secondly, is that the work needs to be done in the shed for obviously insurance purposes. Uh, we do get requests where people would like us to go and do some work at their place, but we really can't do that because we're not covered insurance uh, under those circumstances. And if I know anything about shedders, there'd be a few fellas there that would really love the idea that they're working on an heirloom that's going to be treasured maybe for another half a century or more. Oh, definitely. The, uh, you know, most of the people in this year do have that attitude. And as well as that, we do have uh, quite a broad um, uh, spectrum of experience. So, you know, you have people that are extremely well um, versed in, in working with wood, uh, working. We have some excellent metal workers here. We also have an electronics group. So actually we have people that get in touch with us uh, that want us to um, uh, repair or rejuvenate uh, their old va valve radios. We had a, a lady that um, came in and her parents, I believe, uh, brought a radio when they migrated over from Germany. And, um, you know, so uh, people that have that expertise and that enthusiasm were able to... Um, uh, to restore that radio using, uh, you know, valves from the same period and, and so on. So we we're very fortunate in that area that we've got a very, very broad uh, base of knowledge and expertise and people that are really, really happy to uh, make use of that.
It's a brilliant project. It sounds like you've got some really good things on the go at Bell Conan. Thank you for telling us about them today, Claudio. My pleasure. Thank you for getting in touch with us. Claudio Alero, Membership Manager and, as you can see, uh, Executive Project Manager for the Rocking Horse Project at the Bell Conan Community Shed. Shedder in the Spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Let's meet Gordon Cooper, who is the Belconnen Community Shed President. G'day, Gordon. G'day, Aaron. How are you? Yeah, great, thank you. What's your story? I got uh, involved in the shed about uh, seven, eight years ago and uh, haven't left it. Um, my background was uh, 20 years in the Navy as a Navy shipwright, so I have a, a lot of skills in the um, trade area and uh, was a good fit for the shed, so stayed on and helped build the shed. Pardon my ignorance, and Lake Burley Griffin's nice, but you're you're a long way from the water in Belconnen, aren't you? <laughs> I certainly am. Well, did you go into an executive role or something in Canberra, did you? I joined the Navy when I was 15, and my last two years, after 20 years, I didn't want to spend in Sydney, so Canberra seemed like a nice place, so we came in 1985, and uh, haven't left. We only came for two years, but... Um, we decided to stay, so uh, that's how I got to the capital. And then I um, worked in defence for 20 years and then ran my own business as a tradie and um, got involved with the shed through that. So for the back half of your career, you were mostly using a pen, were you? Yeah, project management, pens, uh, yeah, managing defence projects. How did the tools come back? Easy? Was it like yesterday or were you a bit rusty when you got back on them in the shed? No, no, I've always stayed with the tools in my own shed and I've always um, always been more the practical person than the um, academic. understand. Can we go back to at 15? Where were you and how did you decide that the naval life was for you? I was on a farm down the southeast of South Australia at Lucendale and I got hay fever and I was a second of six, and um, I couldn't uh, couldn't stay on the farm, so I thought the Navy was good. The Navy influence came from my grandfather, who was a Dutchman, who was in the Dutch Navy and jumped ship in Adelaide in 1908. He encouraged me a lot and was a real, uh, a real good granddad to me. You didn't have a lot of experience on the water if you grew up on a farm, so at 15, was it a bit of a shock to the system or did you take to it like a duck to water? No, my first three years, three and a half years, were actually um, in Sydney out at a place called Quakers Hill, a black town, mm-hmm. uh, where I did my apprenticeship. So I did, my, I did a full trade there uh, at Blacktown or Quakers Hill for three and a half years before I went to sea. Right. When you did actually get to sea, did you take to it or was it hard going? No, no, I enjoy the sea. I love the sea. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the first couple of years were on HMA Sydney, the old Bung Cow Ferry back and forth to Vietnam. So Yeah, wow. That dates me a little bit. Yeah, but what a great experience. Did you enjoy your life in the service? I certainly did. It was a rich and rewarding life and... Um, you know, I am where I am today because of the uh, trade I got in the Navy and uh, where I learnt to um, look out, be, uh, be in a team and look out for each other and that's what we had to do at sea. We had to fix things and uh, care for each other. So um, I learnt to fix things without having a Bunnings alongside the ship. The captain of a ship said to us once, it was man-made, it can be man-repaired, fix it. So I've always had that attitude that um, 
most things can be fixed. You don't have to throw them away. Look, I'm one of the worst offenders, but there is no doubt that we have shifted over the last couple of generations, haven't we, from oh. that idea of repair. And, and it's not even stuff in the shed necessarily. We've got that attitude to clothes and cars and all sorts of things. We, we really have lost a lot of our repairing mindset, haven't we? We have, but the technology beats us because you, a lot of the stuff we just can't, you don't have the test equipment to do and... Uh, um, so, yeah, I understand why we work that way a little bit, but there's a lot of pleasure in restoring the old stuff. And, um, yeah, we got what Claudio mentioned, the old valve radios. Mm-hmm. We've got, we got a man in the shed who's 90, and he started his trade in Adelaide with AWA building valve radios, and he's back here today repairing them. So Unreal. That's fantastic. And away from work, what did you do for interest during your life? You said you always stayed on the tools. Was that how you'd spend a weekend? Yes, I've always been um, one that I built my, do all my own modifications, the house, build decks and pergolas and uh, build a lot of furniture. I did. Yeah, I, I was quite occupied while I was still working for the Navy and working to, for defence. Mm. But since I started my own business, I've... Um, I, I've actually closed it now, but I had a lot of time to, to work on the tools and uh, I regret that I didn't trust myself early enough in life to, to actually make a living from my from my trade skills. But I'm doing that, I've done that now, but now retired. Oh, so that's what your business was in, was it? Yeah, oh yeah, my business my business was um, home maintenance, um, uh-huh. decks and pergolas, um, anything from plumbing because I'm a qualified, I was a ship's plumber. I'm a naval craftsman, naval uh, shipwright craftsman, so I can do all the fine woodwork, I can do furniture repairs Mm. and uh, construction stuff. What's the joy in that? If I ask you to come to my house and do a handyman project and you see, um, actually, if you're interested and want to drive up the road, this one's on offer right now. Like I've got a pergola and some of the wood's rotten in it, right? And so the roof's got to come off, the bearings have got to be uh, replaced and then the roof go back on. When you turn up and there's a job like that, what goes through your mind? What's your process? I want to walk away with a satisfied customer yeah. and um, walk away with the job that I'm happy to have in my place. Um, so I've always put um, a lot of effort into doing a, a really good quality job. I never advertised in 10 years of business <laughs> and that um, was just word of mouth. Yeah, that's the highest recommendation of all. And you just, you look at it like a puzzle, do you? You go, okay, well, I'll have to do that and then I'll paint that before I put that on and then that will go there. Is that how your mind works? Yeah, it does. It works like that. And a lot of stuff is not revealed until you actually start pulling it apart. Of course. You're just finding a way of pulling it apart without destroying it too much. Um, Sometimes the owners were uh, strapped for cash a bit, so it was trying to do it it well but do it uh, economically. Mm. Other times, I just wanted it back to brand new. Fascinating. Uh, just before we move on, a, a word more about the Navy and what that did for you personally. There's a lot of people who go into that life and the superstructure and the discipline that just makes them and they love it and other people, that snaps them like a twig. Did it come naturally to you or was it hard going? Oh, it was hard going. I was... Um when I was on the farm, our neighbours were over a mile away. Used to go 30 miles to school on a school bus. And um, when I joined the Navy, I'm suddenly with 700 other apprentices, all a little bit older than me, 
Oh, you soon learn about uh, discipline and you soon learn about keeping below the radar and keeping your head down. Yeah. And if you made a mess of it, you got um, – we used to do a bit of contact counselling in our days, but um, um, <laughs> yes. nowadays it's frowned upon. But I look at where – I am where I am today because of the discipline and um, the, also the quality of the um, old-skilled tradesmen that taught me my skill, the old blacksmiths and the old boiler makers and plumbers, the old sheet metal workers and boat builders that built – you know, they just uh, – they were really – precious men, gifted men who just gave me such a, gave all the apprentices such a head start in life, um, getting really good sound teaching. I've said this a thousand times on the Shed Wireless, but it's truer every time I say it. It literally doesn't matter what you're watching someone do, whether they're a great speaker, whether they are a great footballer, whether they're a great bricklayer, watching somebody who's the master of their trade going about their business, it's its pure entertainment. It's a thing of beauty, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, I still remember a lot of my instructors with a real fondness. Uh, one bloke um, learnt to weld on with bare wire electrodes. <sighs> And what he couldn't do with the apprentices, moving the, changing the amperage on the welders while someone else was welding, you know, he could he could handle all of that, and um, yeah, he was just an amazing, amazing instructor and very very skilled. If you had a grandson or a granddaughter come at you today and say, "I want to join the navy," what would you say to them? I'd, I'd greatly encourage them. I think um, the discipline is needed. And I think the learning that life's not all about me, that it's teamwork. And um, if you can get to the point where the, um, the weakest or the quietest member of the team is made into part of the team, you've got a fantastic place to work. Uh, and that's what we had to do in teams. You had to make sure every member of the team was involved because at the end of the day, if the team, if one person failed, the team failed. So we, we learned to care and look out for each other. Have you got any tats? No, mate, no, no. My wife likes them, but um, I never did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a bloke, wake, one of my mates, waking up one morning in Singapore and he pat, I was in the, we're in the mess and he was in the bunk next to me, across from me. And uh, I saw him pat his shoulder and I saw the colour drain out of his face. <laughs> He had a tattoo that he wasn't supposed to get. So, no, I never got one. <laughs> uh, really good to learn a little bit about your life. In just a second, I'm going to ask about the life of the shed. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. So we just met Gordon Cooper in depth as a person. Let's now get him to put on his Belconnen Community Shed President's hat and talk a little bit about the role of the shed and its history in that part of the world. What can you tell us about how Belconnen Community Shed came to be? The Belconnen Community Men's Shed came to be through a um, $5,000 grant from the Baptist Union to the church that I belong to, Bell Cotton or Mosaic Baptist Church. And then that was some seed funding. Then we had an anonymous donation of $12,000. And from that on church land, the church went ahead to erect a men's shed, 
which would be which would be gifted for use to the community. Um, I was asked to project manage as a member of the church. I was asked to project manage the building of the shed, which I uh, reluctantly took on because I've got my own shed at home and didn't need another shed. But um, <laughs> as the shed was built and as people saw it and as we started to advertise and put a bit in the local newspapers. Um, interest grew and then I realised um, that this is where the Lord wanted me to be, to be in the shed and to um, just to help the people in the community. Uh, that's a very quick overview of how, how it happened. Explain for those who haven't been there, and I was lucky enough to visit only a couple of weeks ago, but explain Bell Conan because it's an unusual place in some ways in that it's a rare mix and it's almost a satellite city. Is it? Is it unfair to say it's like the Parramatta of Canberra? Yes, it is. It's one of the, um, uh, like a big suburb or a big city uh, within the city of Canberra, like Woden is and like Tuggeranong and like Gungarland. They're all, all um, their own mini cities in a, in a in a sense, Belconnen is um, Belconnen has about fifteen twenty suburbs, and uh, has uh, Lake Ginandera. We've got high rise going up now around the centre of in the Belconnen uh, actual suburb of Belconnen, and uh, all around the fringes of Belconnen, the area, new subdivisions are going in. And it's got a lot of old. Uh, it's been around for 40, 45 years, and uh, a lot of houses may be a little bit older than that. And what sort of men do you attract to the shed? We are a practical. We've turned out to be a practical shed. So we are woodworking, metalworking, electronics. Um, we're not a we're not a um, activities based shed. So we don't have walking groups or cycling groups. Uh, we're not a, not an academic shed. So we attract a lot of men with practical skills or people that want to learn practical skills. Um, yeah, that's 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 the um, nature of most of the men at the shed. What does that manifest as when you all get together? We had a project recently to build um, some planter boxes for the Floriard here in Canberra because Floriard was cancelled because of COVID. So they put Floriard in the suburbs, mm. and we built a lot of um, big planter boxes out of pallets. And uh, we had one morning here where about 15, 20 blokes just spent a couple of hours just breaking up pallets. And when we knocked off a smoko, which you always do at 10 o'clock, the, um, the, the atmosphere in the shed was just fantastic because the men had been working together, talking together, and the communication in the shed was something that was um, so different to the normal, so much more excitement, so much more... Um, blokes really check, checking up on each other. Um, so that that project really changed or really brought a fantastic atmosphere into the shed. And um, that happens quite frequently where we get a project where quite a few people get involved. Yeah, fantastic. Obviously, everyone who's listening is involved in a shed and they're all trying to make them as effective and uh, pleasant and high-functioning as possible, what do you think are the cornerstones of a successful shed? First thing is um, welcoming the men into the shed, accepting them as they are, and actually caring for them. Um, 
we did a survey a few years ago and over 60% of the men in the shed have got um, mental health issues and we've run mental health first aid courses. Uh, we have quite a few men come here with a with disabilities who come with a carer and we're just a shed that accepts uh, the men that come. Um, we obviously take um, some precautions because we need to for safety reasons, but we... Mm. We um, we're pretty um, we're fi we're fairly um, routine in what we do, and we always stop at ten o'clock for smoke. We ring a bell, people come in and sit down. Everything gets turned off, and we do have a quiet time. Uh, we've developed uh, we're open four days a week, and we have different activities on different days, and we have the quieter days on Thursday and Thursday afternoon where the electronics group can meet or the people that do plastic bending, or the people that do... We used to have leather working groups here, so we make quieter spaces for those. And when you say quieter, it's not be quiet and shut up. It's quieter in terms of you're not running the lathes. And no, no lathes, no thicknesses, no hammering. You know, it's um, nothing, uh, no dust, no sandy. So no, we try and have days that are a bit quieter with the dust, so no, no wood dust and things like that around. Yeah, good. And... Uh, it's interesting. It's almost like there's a military man in charge knocking off a smoker at precisely the right time and all of that sort of thing. Why do you think the men come? What do they get from it? Oh, there's a multitude of reasons why the men come, but I think the men come for for company. Um, we get a lot of men come who have moved from full-time work into retirement. Um one of the roles that we've taken on, but it's now causing us a bit of a um, concern, is we actually act as a clearinghouse for people moving parents into nursing homes or deceased estates or that. And we, you know, we have got a lot of tools donated to us and timber and that that um, Dad was going to use. And through those contacts, people join to the sh join in the shed. We don't advertise, and I'm reluctant to advertise. Because we are at capacity, uh, we need uh, more men to come and be involved in the shed and um, allow us to assess them in their competence to become a, a daily manager or a duty manager so that we can open the shed more days. Um, if we get over 25 people in the shed, we get crowded. We've uh, expanded outside as much as we can. So the men that come here are men that... Um, no one comes to the shed who wants to work for himself. Um, they have to get involved in the community work of the shed uh, before we let th we let them do their own projects. So we're fairly disciplined in that as well. But um, sadly, some people come and want the, want to use the shed for for their own stuff, but not be involved with anyone else. Uh, we we try to steer away from that as much as possible. You said that you're a man of faith and God called you out of the peace and tranquility of your own shed to get involved with this, but it sounds like a few years on you're glad that you answered that call. Oh, I certainly am. It's been a real blessing. Can I tell you about Bruce, story about Bruce? Bruce came to Canberra because his daughter was here and Bruce had um, terminal cancer. He came from um, North Coast, New South Wales, and... Um, uh, he got involved, he came to the men's shed and um, he got involved in the shed as much as he could 
and a few of the blokes really um, got alongside him. Uh, at the end of the time, almost everybody in the shed was reaching out to Bruce, and um, Bruce um, just found the, the men in the shed the most um, blessed time he'd had in this uh, illness, and um, uh, Bruce sadly passed away uh, in February this year. And um, it's not in my duty statement as um, president of the men's shed to conduct funerals, but uh, the family asked me and Bruce asked me before he died to conduct his funeral. Uh, in that time, in the last couple of months, uh, Bruce gave his life to the Lord when I baptised him. And um, the men in the shed were deeply moved when he uh, passed on. So, so wow. that's one of several stories. Uh, I took a funeral a couple of weeks ago of another man who came into the shed and was a significant builder of the shed, um, and the shed was his community. Um, and again, I was asked to take his funeral. So we really do make a difference to most of the men that come to the shed. Unquestionably. Gordon, thank you for sharing so generously on both the personal and the shed level. Congratulations on all that you're achieving down there and thanks for being a part of the Shed Wireless. Thank you. Thanks for asking us. Would you like to put your shed in the spotlight? Just contact us via email, theshedwireless at mensshed.net and we'll take care of the rest. the new Men's Shed single, if you like. It's officially a jingle, but we're so proud of it, we're calling it a single, and it's going a little bit viral, and it is, as you can hear from that distinctive voice, uh, the brainchild of somebody who has been responsible for one or two of the soundtracks of our lives, and I'm lucky enough to be sitting in the jingle joint on the shores of Lake Macquarie in New South Wales with a couple of intergenerational stars who are behind that and a whole lot more. I'll introduce them both, although at least one of them requires no introduction, and the other you know the work of, even if you don't realise you know the work of him. The first is JPY, John Paul Young, 4 million records sold worldwide, as I say, the voice of some of the most iconic tunes in pop history, including Love Is In The Air. Thank you for having me at your place, mate. Oh, thanks very much, Aaron. It's great. It's great. I'm very, very chuffed to be a, a part of the whole thing. I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful organisation and I've been a part of uh, the Men's Shed for a few years now because one of my best mates actually runs the Toronto men's shed here so i i kind of know a fair bit about it uh, yes we'll get to this but it's like you slid a hand into a glove you were very much at home weren't you yes yeah. no it was great you know and i like your uh, little take on there the the uh, we can call it the single jingle <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> and danny marks young is a talented professional singer and actor he's a technician he sung up front of the aztecs after uh, billy thorpe passed on uh, he wrote a uh, world cup 
Cup song for the FIFA World Cup that you would have heard. He is a remarkable talent. And one thing that I try and do as somebody who followed his dad into a similar industry is introduce their achievements before their relationships. <laughs> Danny Marks Young is also the son of John Paul Young. G'day, Danny. G'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Full disclosure, I consider both of these blokes mates from very different parts of my life. We've worked together uh, in various capacities over various years, so I apologise in advance for the familiarity. Let's talk about the single jingle. Uh, You guys started the jingle joint. You saw a global pandemic happening and thought, I know what I'll do, I'll open a business. Is that right? (laughs) Well, the studio's been here for... I'd say at least 15 years, probably a bit more. But, you know, very much uh, just like a playpen, really, you know, just trying to work our way through different things. But uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, it became quite obvious that live work was going to disappear. So I just thought we'd put some more energy into the studio and um, beefed up uh, the equipment level and um, just decided, well, we'll start and we'll see how far we can get, you know, and and I'm very grateful that the jingle joint uh, was a part of the the men's shed thing because that's proving to be something um, that's really good for me, not just good Mm. for the men's shed, it's really good for me too because it shows a different side of me and uh, and it gets the name out there, you know. So it's it's self promoting and it's a it's a great thing. Yeah, Danny. When we talk about jingles, everybody listening could probably recite. You ought to be congratulated. Come on, Aussie, come on. There's any number of great jingles over the years. How do you even approach a jingle when someone comes at you and says, "Oh, we want something that captures the men's shed," for example? Mm, um, well, I. I think my approach, and I think Dad's approach as well, is um, where it's it's very I don't know if you'd say Tin Pan Alley, but old school, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not cool. Um, we don't go for uh, we, I don't know. Generally, haven't really gone for no. the subliminal cool takes on yeah, yeah. on music and all that kind of stuff. It's very obvious, mm-hmm. and I think that that is quite important. For stickability, is yeah, that why? Yeah, because yeah. it needs to get in your brain, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, and also. I think that could be a point of difference with what we do because mm. I, I have approached other people with things, with with bits of music, and um, it's just not cool. And I take that as being really cool. <laughs> <But it's not laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. You raise an interesting point there, and this is the reality for everybody who's in a creative industry these days, is that it would be lovely. Well, it's not these days. It happened to Michelangelo with the Sistine Chapel as well. You've got to balance your artistic endeavours and the stuff you'd love to be making with actually something that will put food on the table and pay a mortgage, right? Yeah, and, yeah. So, and, and that's kind of the creative tension in a jingle as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Dad had a lot, a, a lot to do with uh, this, the men's shed jingle. Yeah. How? What yeah. was your approach there? Well, because I, I, uh, I was a, a tradesman for a minute. I, <laughs> I did my apprenticeship. I was a, a sheet metal worker, and so I, I'm pretty well familiar with the banter and and what goes on in yeah. on the on the factory floor. And I think that's that's got a lot to do with it. You know, there was the first thing that struck me was, well. The men's shed gathers people from all walks of life. David Helmers told me that uh, there's a, a guy 
in one of the men's shed who's uh, an ex-lawyer. Mm. You know, so he's never had anything, uh, no. you know, to do with his hands and everything, but he just... He just loves it so much, and, and uh, he doesn't tell anybody that he used to be an ex-lawyer because he doesn't want people asking him about, you know, oh, I need some legal advice here and there. It's like ex-doctors, you know, it'd be yeah. the same thing. I've got this sore foot. But, um, you know, so he said, no, 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 I just want to come here and make sawdust. And I just love that. I, You know, come here and make sawdust, you know. That just says it all to me. Having... A representation from woodworkers, metalworkers, whatever you were. This is more about getting people together, and uh, we all have so much more in common than than we realise. And and once you're all together in one space, it all comes out. And that idea of every factory floor's got a got a stretch and got a bluey and got a right, and and yet that is both your individuality, but you melt into something bigger than that, and that's what really comes through strongly in the jingle, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, it's you're right. You know, a lot of the nicknames we had in my factory, I could never put in a jingle, (laughs) but (laughs) but it's so true. You know, we you know we were talking about political correctness before, and Mm. and. My goodness! I mean, some of the things that you know that on the factory floor back in the in the uh, in the late sixties, you know, it, it's and we we still talk like that. I was lucky enough to have a a mate of mine that I did my apprenticeship with come up and visit me about a month ago, and uh, and it was just so funny. It was like we were we were straight back into that factory again yeah. because we were all talking the same language all again, you know. And and I can I can dig that. That's the way the men shed likes it that's the way it is you know because you feel you feel relaxed Mm. you don't feel under any political pressure or anything like that you just get out there and you're just having a yarn with people and everybody knows that so there's none of this walking on eggshells that's that's the bit that's the bit and interestingly the recording of the video was a test of that. There's a nice philosophy around that, yeah. but actually, you rocked in being a bona fide celebrity into a place that was a men's shed yeah. to basically jam with the guys, right? Oh no, it, it was great. You know, I, I remember there was one comment just just as we'd finished uh, shooting the what do you call it the the, the, the single, single jingle, jingle? Yeah. yeah. Just as we finished shooting it, and it just took me straight back to the factory. Somebody yelled out, "Well, it's just as well you can sing. You can't act, <laughs> you know." And I just thought, "There oh, it is. Yeah, I'm back." <laughs> <laughs> well, it says something about your personality that that sort of stuff you just love, and it's it's water off a duck's back. Talk a little bit more about that day at Raymond Terrace, because presumably they got the music ahead of time and practiced it a bit, did they, or how did it work? Yeah, well, we asked them. Uh, I think it was David asked them mm. to uh, to learn yesterday's hero, mm. you know, which they did, and and they're they're a really good good outfit. I just can't believe how many instruments there were. There was yeah. banjos and you know keyboards and guitars, uh, thousands of guitars. So it's just a a great thing, you know. And and the the things they make, you know, some of these toys and yeah. especially the wooden toys, they're just out of this world. Mm. So you know. It, yeah, it's just, just a great bunch of people. How do you know when you've got a really good bit of music? How do you know when you've got success? Sometimes the, the first idea is the best. Yeah. So you just rock with it. And I think at the end of the day, as a an artist, you are super critical of yourself. Mm-hmm. So 
the test is if you can make yourself happy with what you've done then you're on a pretty good road because nobody can be more critical than you are to you know, to you if, if, if you can just come up with a, a certain little something a little spark and it doesn't make you want to throw up yeah 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 <laughs> then you, you go ahead with it you just keep keep plowing ahead you know until somebody says no oh, no don't do that I had the experience of uh, talking to you guys about it conceptually and trying to give you an idea and then I was sitting in a room in front of my computer when the first version dropped and it was that really cool moment of going oh yeah you took all of that abstract idea all of those loose concepts and now it's something that's actually in the world and I mean that to me is magical I guess that just comes from putting down the sheet metal and taking up singing all those years ago right well you know luckily I've always been the sort of bloke that sings you know that that was that's how I got into this business by default mm. you know by by being the one out of the, the bunch of guys in you know, the four or five dudes that used to meet every weekend and and I was the one who didn't want to be in the band even though they had their eyes on me as being the singer long before I realized it so yeah it's uh it's just something that's in me you know this is a conversation I've had with both of you separately and it'd be interesting to have it with you together you clearly have an amazing talent JPY that has made you the global phenomenon that you have been but you have said to me correct me if I'm wrong you have said to me in the past that there are other blokes that are just as talented as you maybe more so who never became megastars yep is that fair comment first of all absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. there's there's uh, there's so many examples that I can think of you know of people who who are just incredibly talented you know and, and something silly will happen like you know somebody say well you know yeah I know and I can sing and, and everything but I don't like traveling yeah. you know so immediately he's out of the picture you know he will never make it yeah. you know and then there's the other ones who who will do anything yeah. to, to get to that point but for some reason uh, you know it, it just doesn't happen and uh, they go in the bin you know there's a Especially these days, everybody with a, a tape recorder in their in their in their bedroom can can start recording. So if you can imagine what the great arbitrators of taste mm. yeah. have to have to listen to to decide what's going to happen, where and when, that means there's an awful lot of them go in the bin, mm. and uh, it's a shame. It's a it is a shame, but uh, but that's the world, you know. There's winners and there's losers everywhere. Danny, unlike others. You grew up with the best and worst of the industry on display through your dad. You lived it. You were immersed in it. That would have sent a lot of blokes running in the other direction at a thousand miles an hour. Why did you want to pursue this industry? What did you see that made you want to do what can often be a thankless, what could be is a vow of poverty if you're not careful, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. No, um, well, it's, I did run away from it, I guess, like until I was probably, I, even so much so where I didn't do study music at HSC, for example, right. and then for the musical HSC performance, they were after a singer. So I kind of just fell into it. Finally, when I just had enough confidence to kind of give it a crack in year 12, and I was better than 
okay at it mm. and that was enough for me to, yeah. to kind of go with it. As far as um, it being a living was concerned, I wasn't, you know, I was just still a kid, still um, mm. um, just in love with music, I guess. I think a lot of things have changed if you talk about generationally as far as the machine or the way to get into the industry, even though dad's path wasn't, was, you know, by chance a lot. And oh, by, yeah, um, a lot of luck. Yeah, yeah. a lot of luck. Um, you know, there was a lot of luck with me in the first instance, but then, you know, the, the world changed. Can you compare and contrast? I realise you two have very different skill sets and were on very different journeys, but what did change in that generation? Money, you know, as far as people weren't really buying products. Mm. And especially when I was probably around my, you know, the formative kind of time where I went down and started working with Harry Vander in the studio and stuff like that, the real crunch time of, you know, LimeWire and mm. the illegal downloads were huge and record companies were petrified. Mm. They, they didn't know what to do and I think it, it's, it's starting to slowly crawl its way back mm. but in saying that, that's a total new thing to me as well that I don't really understand. JPY, in my mind, I imagine it being like the manufacturing industry, right? Once upon a time, you had fewer shirts that you wore, right? Yep. But they were tailored and bespoke, right? Mm. And that was the pop star of your era. There were in many ways fewer of them, mm-hmm. but you went interstellar, right? Whereas now we have a lot more shirts that may be of a comparable quality, but there's a lot more of them. And so the actual individual value has dropped through mass production. There's just so much out there. Yeah. There is so much out there and it's fragmented. In our day, you really only had one major radio station in in the city of Sydney, you know, and it was probably 2SM who were like the big station. Mm. So as long as you got away, then you were away. You know, there was none of this uh, fragmentation. Uh, Now look look at the TV, it's the same. We used to have three channels. Mm. Now we've got 33, and that's not even counting what comes in from overseas, you know. It's just, uh, it's such a fragmented business these days. It, it, it's it's hard, to, hard to get a foothold, you know, mm. it really is hard. What does it do to your personal dynamic, the two of you being father and son in the same industry? Well, he does his thing, I do my thing. You know, I, on the odd big gig, when the money's there, I'd get Danny in to do backing vocals and, you know, on the stage and it's, you know, it's uh, help as much as you can. But I think a big part of this business is there's not much, even though I've been successful in the business, there's not much I can do to help him. It really is your own your own journey. There's that word again. And, yeah. and that's that's it. You know, it's, it's all there. It's like the tools are laid out before you. Yeah. And... Uh, You've got, to, you've got to learn how to use them. Danny, from your perspective, how does the, the intergenerational vibe work? Because, I mean, it's both a blessing and a curse to be JPY's son, right? Yeah, to a degree, like, but not so much now, you know. I mean... It was tough when you were a kid. Yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. I bet. Yeah. Um, it was funny because, you, know, <laughs> um, you know, you used to get hassled out a lot in high school by kids wearing ACDC t-shirts, you know, which is yeah, yeah. the old man's record company, you know, the, the same yeah, yeah. the same bunch of dudes. They used, they used to play support for me. Yeah. 
um, as you'd expect, um, there was also fatherly advice, um, and I didn't make mistakes that I probably could have. Can you give me an example of what that, oh, that looks like? like? Money-wise, yeah. you're in it, you know, it's just... You know, no, stay away from that. So I think the most important thing I said to you was, don't sign anything. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because one thing about your generation, JPY, is there's lots of stories of it going one way or another, right? Somebody yeah, yeah. who signed a good deal and they're still getting checks today, yep. and somebody who signed a bad deal and they're destitute. Oh, well, I was I was lucky. I I did sign anything because it was the first thing that was put in front of me was a, a contract for Albert. So. But by the same token, I was also offered. I was offered a contract or five hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, I mean, five hundred dollars was a sizable sum. In that 19- was not nothing. Nineteen seventy-one. You know, but um, you know, I just I, I took the, took the chance and I I signed on the on the dotted line. And to be quite honest, the deal wasn't fantastic. But as it turned out, Alberts just became one of the biggest record companies on the planet, you know, as, as far as a, a small record company goes. And they've looked after me, you know. Mm. It, it really was like a family business. And, and I was brought in and I became part of the family. And, and as things moved along, they changed, without me having to ask, they changed some terms of my contract. We'll make this better for you and we'll make that better for you. I can never quantify working with George Young and Harry Vander. You know, that's just absolute dream time stuff, you know, for, for, that, for that to have happened. You want to talk about good fortune. There's the real good fortune, right? Yeah. That yeah. that they could have screwed you over royally if they were a different type of person. Exactly, you know, right. and, and the reason why they were different was because they got screwed over royally and they made sure that it wasn't going to happen to them or anybody else that they were working with you know and they was and they were so testy when it came to talking about management even my management you know, they go oh you know just watch it there watch it you know? like yeah that, that they were they were really good mentors Back to your point about going, oh, you don't sort of work super closely on a lot of projects or haven't, but when he was emerging as a singer, yeah. would you literally go, oh, you should introduce this into your performance or that into your performance? Like, did you have that sort of relationship? Um, no, I, I do remember we we were part of a pro-am uh, musical, Leader of the Pack. Uh, I couldn't even tell you what year that was. Um, it was a long time ago. I think you, I think you were only about well, yeah. yeah, eighteen, nineteen, something like that. And I remember we were driving uh, home from Castle Hill, and I put I put on the on the radio. I put on um, "Whole Lot of Love" by Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. just to show show Danny what not just song construction was about, but what deconstruction was all about. Yeah. Because that is a it's such an amazing piece of music, you know, where everything happens and then all of a sudden it just falls apart, you know, and it goes, it goes, you know, almost into the rubbish bin, you know, and but then it comes back and it, and it takes you with it, you know, it, it's a, it's a great piece of, great piece of music, and I, I think uh, I, I also said to Danny, you've got to find that part of your voice when you're screaming at your sister, you know, like that that part of your yeah. voice and, and use that, you know, because, uh, you know, Danny's got one of the 
one of the one of the great rock and roll voices. You know, he he really can get up there and and, and let it fly. And there's not many singers can do it. No, and you, you have know? to give yourself permission to do that, right? And yeah, you've got to find it. Yeah. You've got to find that voice. And I found it because. Back in the day when, when I was with Elm Tree, mm. everybody else had amps. I had a tiny little, <laughs> you know, a, a little PA. Mm. And and I'm standing in front of this drum kit that was, you know, almost making me deaf. And uh, so I had to find that voice to, to get above it. But now, now that it's there, I don't like it mm. in my face, you know. So I like it down a little bit now so, so that I can still have to push to achieve... What I used to achieve back in the in the seventies, in the late sixties, even though the uh, the Rolls Royce treatment is there for me if I want it, I kind of back off from it, and I I, I kind of want to reproduce how unfortunate I was back in the sixties. No, that makes a lot of sense, and that's sort of how you trained yourself to get yeah. into your performance mode, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, Danny, you and I know each other from your technical expertise that's how <laughs> we worked mm-hmm. and i'm interested how being a performer informs your technical side of things because it must right the things that you learn from the other side of the microphone if i can put it that way must inform your technical and production and vice versa yeah yeah i i, I think when performing i they are Two separate things. Mm. I do like I yeah. I don't think about it when I'm on stage because mm. you really don't want any kind of no you know, no no. How's the weather today? Well, well, also it's going to it's uh, going to interrupt what JP <laughs> was just talking about that yeah. getting in the yeah. performance space. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and and like what he was saying about mm. fighting for your voice. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, I fell into the kind of recording thing. Uh, it could have been when I was fourteen or fifteen, just stuffing around with computers and 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 whatnot. And it was just a means to to be involved with other musicians as well, yeah. And to because I don't, you know, play instruments as such or anything like that. I do play around with programming music and stuff like that. But um, when I'm working recording wise, it, I can be pretty quick as far as I like to be by myself. I like to have my own little space. And um, yeah, I, I do feel as if they're two pretty separate things. That said, it kind of sets you up for the modern reality right because the idea of only having one skill set is dead in 2020 in terms of any sort of creative endeavor yeah absolutely i just wonder what the future looks like for both of you neither of us really knows what the future looks like in 2020 and COVID. I think we're all looking forward to uh, 2021 starting, mm. but JP, why, what gets you out of bed each morning now? And <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's her name again? No, no, uh, no. no what's, it's my, <laughs> my age. <laughs> the older I get, the earlier I'm getting up, you know, I can't, right? I can't believe it. You know, so yeah, and prostate problems, you know, no. <laughs> I've spent more time talking about what's up guys butts than I ever thought I would in this life so I'm hearing you brother yeah. but, but like motivationally and whatever else I mean you live in a beautiful part of the world you could just sit yeah. on the deck all day what makes yep. you still want to rip in oh you know you you, you can just get get bored mm. you know for want of a better word you know you just sort of go oh just got to do this again do that again whatever I think we're really lucky uh, in in this time because when you think back to 
your parents or your grandparents. And when they retired, they really did just sit around and do nothing. And they're also the kind of people that, that wouldn't open up mm. to you about those things. And they kind of just took it on their shoulders that this is my lot now and I've, I've, I've had my working life, now it's time to sit around and do nothing. Mm. And there was only the odd person who would uh, retire and then get involved in something else and, and, you know, focus on something else. Whereas I think that's really on top these days. You know, I I think most people uh, who reach retirement age realise that if they were just going to sit around and make a cup of tea and watch telly for the rest of their lives, then it's not going to be good for them. And they know that. And so... They, they get out and they try something different. You know, I'm kind of the same. You know, I haven't worked since February. But I've been in that kitchen a hell of a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and, and just just making making different things every day and, 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 and at the same time thinking, I'm sick of making different things. I want to stick to the old, the old recipes and just improve them. And doing this, you know, like I said, you know, when the COVID thing happened, it... I think you've got to be adaptable. Yeah. You've just got to be able to... Ad- and, and don't be scared of having a go at whatever, whatever it is. You've put your finger right on a theme that comes through n- nearly every conversation we have on The Shed Wireless, yeah. whether we're coming at it from a mental health point of view, whether yeah. we're talking to a celebrity, whether we're just shooting the breeze about everyday life, is that one of the keys to happiness and I treat the word happiness with a bit of suspicion but one of the <laughs> one of the keys to happiness is having a purpose finding a purpose and having a yeah. purpose and that's really what you've just described right exactly you know and, and it, this happened to me when I first moved up here 30 uh, odd years ago and and a friend of mine in in radio got in touch with me and 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 wanted me to, to help him do a radio program up in Townsville. Mm. And he turned out to be, he was going to be the new program director for New FM. Mm. And uh, and I finished up in there working. And I, and it's all about saying yes. Mm. Don't say no. Mm. If you're hanging around and not doing much and something somebody pops it, something in front of you and says, I want you to write a book, even though you've never written a book before in your life, don't say no. Have a go. Just do it, you know. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out because everybody knows you're coming from a, a place of, uh, of no experience when it comes to doing that. So whatever it is, if, if you get the chance to do something, even though it might be totally alien to you, have a crack at it and see how you go at it. And to your point, it is a blessing that we live in an age when that is encouraged because I think a lot of the reason why people went home and watched telly and watched their P's and Q's is that society frowned on being a little too flourishing in your later years, right? Yeah, I think think so. But there was a certain fatalistic sort of attitude as well, you know, which I think is... Has gone. We've got the boomers to thank for that. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sixties. Yeah, <laughs> and and Danny, intergenerationally, what about your kid? Is he artistically inclined? Yeah, well, he. I've been putting off for a long time. He's wanted to start his own YouTube channel. <laughs> so, um, so that's what he's into. Which so like it's it's pretty funny because that kind of ticks the box because he's doing something that. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. obviously, you know, he must be on the right track generation-wise. Yeah? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
I have got no idea what he does. <laughs> he's seven, yeah. and he's so fixated with outer space. It's you know, and the planets and everything. Yeah. You know, and I, I heard the other day somebody saying, "You know, what's the smallest planet?" And I think it was Mercury. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, I'll test him. And I, had, I said, I said, Al, what's the smallest planet? He said, Mercury. He said, it used to be Pluto. You know, they say this is like a sign. If you've got a kid that does a deep dive on dinosaurs or outer space or yeah. whatever the thing is that's there, that it's a sign that they'll be successful later in life. That, that, <laughs> right. to, to really deep dive on saying. Where I'm going with this, though, is would you encourage or discourage him to become the third generation to head into this industry? He is also the the uh, the grandson of the late great Les Murray. Indeed. So I mean, him. Even though it's I don't understand what he's saying, he'll <laughs> he'll happily get up there for ten minutes and just and just talk. So I mean, I would love for him to learn more about production side and to do his own videos and to to you know and even at school nowadays they they um introduced coding you mm. know and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, yeah. if, as long as he can get behind the scenes with all that kind of stuff, yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, I would definitely encourage him to do that. Whereas, I don't know, I with singing and it seems a, like a bit more of a vocation, which I'm sure what you would have told me. But now you can, like, you know, take the weekend off and not be, you not be a singer, take the weekend off and do your own single and put it on Spotify and release it. Yeah. And say, so I've done that. Yeah. I've done that now. So long as you don't want to make a mint out of it, that's the, yeah, yeah. That's the well, only yeah. caveat in all of that. What does he call you, JPY? Pa, right. So if he goes, Pa, you know, I, I want to have hit singles as well one day. What would you say to him? I'll be very, very careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I can only relate back to Danny's experience. I He, he kept any ambition he had to be a singer from me. Interesting. Didn't mention, mm. you know, and it was uh, it wasn't until seventeen you know, or eighteen, yeah, yeah, seventeen or eighteen, and, mm. and and even then I was petrified. I just mm. oh no 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 don't, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because because I know how lucky I was. Mm. I was just so lucky, you know, the, the things just fell in my lap. We were like dinosaurs back in the sixties because there wasn't many of us. Yeah, yeah, you know, there, there was there was the odd band at spring. You know, like, we started from absolute zero when we started our band. And after about three months, we finally got somebody into the band that knew what they were doing, yeah. you know, to teach the rest of us basic chords and things like that. But within two years, we were the biggest band in Liverpool, yeah. you know, and we were actually working in Sydney and, and you know, doing th- I never, ever imagined that we'd get that far. Yeah. But, you know, we did. Be- once again, because there wasn't too much around, you know, like the the only uh, gigs that we played were school halls and things, mm. you know, and and the kids were right into it, you know, really, really right into it. Whereas today, every second person can play the guitar and can do this and can do that and da da da, and it's it's wonderful. But you know, we came from a different place, and I was just I was I was very cautious, you know. And Danny, when I was going, oh, I wish you had said that, you know. So, but. I do remember also trying to funnel him into the backstage thing, funnel him into production, the adjunct of the business. And uh, I learned years ago when I was I was going to muck around with a bit of aquaculture, and uh, it only took about a month, and I realised. 
People who are selling the aquaculture gear are making more money than the people who are doing the aquaculture. <laughs> that, honestly, that's where it's at, you yeah. know. So you've got to know, you've got to know the business that you're in, you know. I was lucky. I didn't have to know anything. But these days, I think the more background you know about what you're going to get into and realise, you know, the whole structure of things, then, you know, you're a lot you're a lot better off. Is there anything that you would not write a jingle for? <laughs> um, I, I'd write a dozen a day up here in my head. You know, like the, the, you know, the amount of stuff that I've written that you could never, ever put down. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> I've always been the kind of person I have never wanted segregated music mm. you know I, I when we grew up the same radio station would play yummy 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 I've got love in my tummy and then they'd follow it with a whole lot of love from Led Zeppelin yeah. and nobody thought it was strange yeah. whereas you couldn't do that today you know, you, if you like jazz you, you, you have to listen to jazz classicals over there hip hop's here uh, soul music's there there's rock and roll there's pop they shall never meet well that ain't what's going on in my head. No. I like little bits of this and little bits of that, and I think that's that's where the world is. That's where the world should be. I don't like the piecemeal attitude of, uh, of music these days, but, yeah, that's the world you're in. I feel the same way about everything in life, whether it be food or yeah. movies or whatever. Exactly, For yeah. goodness sake. Being a snob about things. Yeah, yeah. just taste off every plate. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> taste <laughs> off every plate. Thank you both for having me in the jingle joint today. Thank you for your fantastic contribution to the men's shed movement. And I, in all sincerity, I know I'm biased because I'm close to it, but in all sincerity, <laughs> I think the jingle is genius. And the test was... I took it into my family and played it once and went, oh, look, have a, have a listen to this. And then 45 minutes later, the five-year-old was doing the dip, dip, dip. <laughs> And I'm like, that is the highest praise. That is a Michelin hat for a jingle. <laughs> when somebody's still singing it 45 minutes later. Thanks, gentlemen. Great to hang with you. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Nailed it. Nailed it.
Nailed it. Nailed it. With Rip Woodchip. Ah, g'day, shadows. Rip Woodchip here. How you all going today? I'm just up the back shed knocking together a cubby house for one of the grandkids for their birthday. Hold on just a second. Oh, bloody hell, son of a bitch, you bastard of a... Crikey, that hurt. Oh, sorry about the foul language, fellas. Hope there weren't any ducks in the pond just now. I generally like to mind me P's and Q's, but every now and again, like when I bash the absolute crap all out of me thumb with a hammer, I tend to let rip with a few expletives. I'm sure nothing you fellas haven't heard all before anyways. I know you don't have to go far to hear worse, that's for sure. Crikey, you only have to go down and walk past the old schoolyard nowadays. You can hear worse than that, I reckon. Some of the language you hear from kids using these days, my old man would have hung, drawn and quartered me if he'd heard anything of the sort coming out of my mouth. He was no saint himself and could swear like a trooper at times, but he taught me how to be a gentleman and to maintain a certain amount of decorum, that's for sure. It wasn't until I got a bit older that the old man had even let me slip any kind of colourful language into my vocabulary. But even then, never in front of me mother, and any lady for that fact. But nowadays, it's truth. I hear some women swearing just as bad, if not worse, than some of the fellas. They don't seem to give a sh- a darn where they happen to be or who can hear them. It's just the society we live in, though, I suppose. It's all around us, whether you like it or not. You can't walk down the street or turn on the TV or the wireless without people swearing like it's second nature nowadays. Where did that all happen? But hearing it and repeating it are two different things. I hear kids knee-eye to a grasshopper using words and language that used to get us publicly shamed, now barely batters an eyelid. And as soon as a shock factor gets out of one word, they replace it with a new one. What happened to the days of washing your mouth out with soap? That was a real thing in my day, not just a bloody threat. You couldn't so much as say flaming without copping a mouthful of soul bowl. Oh, I can still taste that stuff. If you can't find the proper words in certain company, keep your mouth shut. I reckon if you've got an overabundance of profanity in your vernacular, well, it's a good sign you have an IQ less capable of maintaining any decent dialect. Or you just don't give a f- I mean, you don't give a hoot. There's a time and a place, though. you just got to have the mentality and judgement to know when and where that time and place is. A bit of colourful language in the right context, or in certain company, can be funny and serve its purpose. Especially if you're trying to describe someone like that bloke that cut me off in traffic this morning, whose cranium remarkably resembled a specific part of the male anatomy. Chivalry's not dead just yet, fellas, but it's sure got one foot in the grave and another on a banana skin, that's for sure. All we can do is mind our own and try and set a good example. There's many a dying trade and a trait that will be buried alongside of us old blokes, and good manners and respect is just one of them, if we don't try and pass it down to the youngins. So we just got to try and hold our tongues. Anyway, fellas, I'm going to go wrap this thumb around a cold beer so it doesn't swell up too bad. All right, fellas, catch you next week. See ya. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. So I stopped by the optometrist yesterday for an eye exam. And he told me my eyesight was so bad, 2020 might be the only way to describe it. Let's hope 2020 vision becomes hindsight sooner rather than later. But we are going to ask the doc today 
about our eyesight. How closely is it linked to our quality of life? And what can you do to ensure your eyes don't fail you anytime soon? Our always go-to guy here on the Shed Wireless is Professor Rob McLaughlin, AM, Medical Director at Healthy Mail, amongst many other things. Hi, Rob. Hi, Aaron. G'day. Welcome, as always. And as he often likes to do, the doc is referring us to a specialist as well. And on this occasion, it is James Armitage, Professor of Optometry, Optometry Course Director and Head of Vision Science at Deakin University School of Medicine. Welcome to the Shed Wireless, James. How you going, Aaron? Nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you. And we appreciate you being a part of it. Rob, I think there's a bit of a paradox when it comes to blokes and eyesight. Most of us accept that glasses may well be a reality at some point. And if you wander into your average shed, you'll see a lot you'll see a lot of blokes with goggles. Absolutely. We endure them even if we don't embrace them. But the real phobia is around losing your license because your eyes are getting really bad. And that can lead to some heavy duty denial. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, so we, we really do need our eyes to work to a degree where they meet our needs, and that might be to, to drive a car, but, you know, we want to see our family, we want to see our grandchildren, we want to be able to see the golf balls that goes down the fairway. In my case, I want to see the fly floating down the stream. I'm a man king fly fisherman. You've got to have good peepers for that. So, you know, we, we want our eyes to work and we expect them to do so. And, and uh, sure, as you get older, your arms aren't long enough to read the newspaper and you get some magnifiers, and that takes care of things for many people for quite a while. But you know, every now and again, something more starts to happen. Uh, you may not know it's happening uh, acutely or suddenly, but something's changed. And you, you kind of need to uh, be very careful uh, to have your eyes reviewed, as obviously you've done and I have done, because there could be something more going on. Yeah, we talk about your experience shortly. James, because this is such a huge topic, can we just start... I guess with a few of the myths, legends and old wives tales when it comes to eyesight. Uh, I learned recently that apparently carrots aren't especially good for your eyes. They're not bad for them either, but they uh, that's all just a bit of propaganda or PR. But what sort of things do people say uh, when it comes to eye mythology? Yeah, the carrots, the carrots was one of the things that we hear a lot. It's, you know, carrots are good for your eyes and they are because beta carotene, which is in carrots and it's um, a vitamin A derivative is part of what our eyes need to work, um, but we don't need a lot of it. And in fact, um, there are some stories about people who've eaten so much of it that their eyes go a little yellow because of the, the build-up of the beta-carotene. I think one of the biggest myths that I would hear as an optometrist is that people say, oh, I don't, don't want to wear the glasses because I'll make my eyes weaker. And glasses aren't like crutches or anything else. Glasses after you're about eight, maybe 10 years old, there's almost nothing that we can do to make your eyes better or worse, maybe out to about 15. So for the majority of your shedders, um, I'm guessing more of it, they're over 15 years of age. So really the best thing you can do is if you need glasses or if you're not seeing well, get a pair of glasses because then you'll actually be able to see. And a lot of people do say, oh yeah, I've got these glasses and since I've been wearing them, oh, I think my eyes have got weaker because when I take them off, I can't see as well. Best description I can give is, and I apologise to anyone who drives you know, an EH Holden, but if you drive an EH Holden and then your mate gives you a, a brand new Ferrari to borrow for a week, the EH Holden that was doing pretty well for 40 years, 
doesn't feel quite as good anymore, does it? So often what happens is you get a pair of glasses and finally you can see the world properly. Um, so you just won't tolerate not seeing anymore. So don't be afraid of them. They, um, you can't make your eyes weaker. You can only just see a bit better. One of the things that people say, James, is that your 40th birthday present is a pair of glasses that by the age of 45, very few people are suffering no deterioration of their eyesight. Is that true? Yeah, depending on your prescription and a couple of other factors, um, your genetics as well a little bit, most people between 40 and 50 will start to need glasses for reading. And that's because the lens inside our eye, which when we're young is very flexible and can be moved around by the muscles to change its shape and change focus, that lens becomes hard like, you know, the bushings, the rubber bushings in a car, they just lose their flexibility, they become hard and it doesn't move around as much. And so as that lens stops moving, um, we, we can't change our focus so well. Is it true that the position they freeze in, for want of a better term, determines whether you are short-sighted or long-sighted no 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 so short-sighted or long-sighted it's almost been sort of um determined by about by about 20 your eye grows and if it grows a little bit too long then um you become myopic or short-sighted um and if it grows a little bit too short you become um hyperopic or long-sighted um so the long-sightedness or short-sightedness is there it's a it's a natural condition of our eyes and then on top of that as we hit our 40s maybe 50s the lens which loses its flexibility um, means that we get near problems as well so it's a bit of a double whammy okay what is good eye health yeah look i think good eye health is a little bit like saying you know what's good heart health or what's good lung health it's about thinking about all the things that can affect the eyes and that's our environment, sunlight exposure, um, about our diet. Are we getting lots of antioxidants and um, healthy food because our eyes are um, prone to damage from oxidative stress? Um, and it's about making sure that the rest of our body is healthy because our eyes are just another part of our body. Mm-hmm. So if you've got heart disease or cardiovascular disease, then that can also affect your eyes. So really, you know, good eye health is probably not too different apart from the exposure stuff like sunglasses or um, UV light exposure, probably no different to, you know, good body health and, and good cardiovascular health. It's funny how almost no matter what part of the body we talk about here on Ask the Doc, it still comes back to those fundamentals on some level. But regarding sunlight and UV light, can you just elaborate on that a little? Because that is eye specific in some ways. Yeah, and, and I think about over the last, right, probably I'm, I'm 47 now, so I remember the slip slop slap ads when they first came in and I reckon I must have been about 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so say for the last you know, 30, 40 years, we've known that sunlight is not good for our skin. And again, our eyes are just, you know, another part of our body. So avoiding sunlight on your eyes um will reduce the chance of developing lumps and bumps on the surface of the eye. Largely, they're not, they're not cancerous like a melanoma, although melanoma is possible. What they do is um, those lumps and bumps on the front of the eye, a little bit like the windscreen of your car, if you've got sap or lumps and bumps um, on the front of the eye or the front of the windscreen of your car, every time your lids or your wipers come down, it crashes over them and it 
can make for an uncomfortable eye. It can promote dry eye. Um, and it can also um, mess up the way our tears function and therefore um, we don't see quite as well. Um, our lens actually absorbs a lot of the UV light. Our cornea and our lens absorbs a lot of the UV light so it doesn't get through to the retina at the back of the eye. But lots of UV light also um, can you know, cause cataracts to form a little bit earlier. Um, I tell a lot of my patients cataracts are a, a little bit like grey hair and, and you know, wrinkles. You, you don't get old without them. Um, certainly we can protect our eyes. So sunnies are absolutely the go. And also most people who wear glasses, we now put people in resin plastic lenses because they're safer if you, you don't want glass breaking in your eye. Um, plastic's a lot safer. But the plastic usually absorbs... 98, 99, 100% of UV light. So if you're wearing glasses most of the time, you're actually reducing the amount of UV that's getting to your eye in the first place. And if you don't wear glasses, wear sunnies. Has it been your experience that the losing the ability to drive is one of the key phobias around eyesight and ageing? Yeah, so losing a licence um, is is a scary thing because it, it, you lose your independence, don't you? It's, you know... It's a real concern for a lot of my patients, but you'll be surprised actually that the driving standard is very forgiving because if if six six or twenty twenty vision is the you know the standard vision that we all think about, the driving standard for most people, um, depending this is for um, private licences anyway, is six twelve or better in at least one eye, and six twelve means you see. Things, you can only see things that are um, double the size of a 6.6 letter. So uh, in, in simple terms, maybe it's, you know, things have to be twice as big to see them. So that's actually pretty forgiving. And there's also some, some standard information around the field of vision. So even if you don't pass the unrestricted um, standard, there is the possibility for an optometrist or an ophthalmologist to examine your eyes and recommend a restricted license. And again, for most people, a restricted license, whilst not excellent, is enough to keep your independence. You can still drive within a, um, a certain zone that's familiar to you or certain hours of the day or whatever else. So I wouldn't be saying to people, don't worry about it. But in fact, most of the time, the people who are really worried about it, when we test them, they, we can say, yeah, you can keep your license or you can get a restricted license. So the alternative, which is ignoring it and hoping it'll go away, and it won't, is that if you're not seeing things, it's it's a dog, it's a cat, it's another car, or worse, that you might not see until it's too late. So it's a really good idea to make sure you are passing that standard. What I'm hearing there is avoiding the optometrist is probably the worst thing you can do if that's your fear. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, most eye problems, and there are a few sort of exceptions, but most eye problems, if they're caught early, can can be prevented. Most vision loss, most sight loss is preventable. And again, even if it's not entirely preventable, there might be ways to slow the development of whatever that condition might be. So the quicker you get in, the quicker we can work out what it is. And then if there is a treatment, the quicker you've got that treatment. Once you've lost vision, it's impossible to, almost impossible to get vision back. So get onto it quickly, yeah. Yeah. Rob, you might at this point share with us a personal story, if you don't mind, just because... 
as we heard, everybody kind of has to face the reality of eyesight and ageing. There are also exceptional events that can happen, as there can be with any other part of the body. Do you want to share your experience, please? You sure? You know, about about two or three years ago, I woke up one day and just with one, just in one eye, it's like I had a kind of a blurry donut around the centre of vision. So you know, I could sort of see a, a couple of letters uh, of where I was looking, but everything around those letters, like a donut, was all kind of blurry and and just out of kilter. And I thought, oh well, that's you know that that'll go away. It's, you know, the little floater or something in the eye, you know, whatever, whatever. And a week later, it was still there, and I thought, hang on. So uh, I went along to my friendly ophthalmologist, who I, who I see every year to get my glasses prescription made, and she said, oh, it looks all right. Uh, let's do a field, a visual field test. And in fact, I had this blind spot right around the centre of vision, which was completely not normal, and the retina was swollen and uh, it was not right. So I've been off to see an ophthalmologist right away. And, you know, I didn't know this was happening, just came out of the blue. Uh, and as, uh, as James was saying, you know, things can be done for things like that, but you need to get onto it early. So, I mean, I, I, I suspect many people would say, oh, well, you know, it's probably just age or whatever. You know, it might not just be age, it might be something else. So personally, uh, I would encourage anybody who thinks something's gone a bit out awry with one of their eyes to go and have a, look, have, a, have a checked out because it could be something that's worthy of an early intervention. So what's your daily reality like with that now? Well, it's um, happily, my other eye is, is gangbusters. It's fantastic. So I can still see the fly on the river. <laughs> and uh, so I can you know, live without that, uh, that, that blurry donut in the other eye. I can kind of ignore it if you like. But uh, it hadn't been both eyes. I'd been all sorts of strife. So it's it, it's fine. You know, I'm I'm still at work and still seeing the grandkids and going fishing. So uh, life life is good. But that's my experience. But of course, others would have a, a different experience. And obviously, if it's both eyes, it gets much more serious. And uh, if something can be done about it, well, gosh, you know, do it early. You know, get seen to. James, is the eye really complex, or is it quite simple? <laughs> it's amazing is what it is. It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's a beast. It really is. It, it's it's a mini brain. It's got it, the retina um, at the back of the eye, which is the, the bit that detects the light, is one of the most specialised sensory organs um, ever invented. And it's really interesting if you, if you look across um, species, there's actually a couple of different ways you can build an eye. You look at flies' eyes or spiders' eyes. But really interestingly, human eyes or primate eyes and, and um, or mammalian eyes and octopus eyes have evolved completely differently, like th- through a, two different, very, very different pathways, but they almost look the same. And so it's a super complex arrangement of neurons and support cells to get light from the outside world and into the eye. And then you think about the way we process the colour, the movement, the texture. It is quite amazing. We've got dogs in the background, mate. Apologies, I've got my border collie in the background, and I think yours might be having a crack as well. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's Ted. He's a, he's a bit of an alarm clock. <laughs> yeah, right. So somebody's stealing your VCR, mate. <laughs> somebody's corralled, Ted. What sort of a dog is Ted? He's a spoodle. Yeah, right. What have you got, James? Oh, I've got a border collie. So she's she's complaining at the moment because uh, kids are back at school, and so she's a bit lonely, and she's she's learning what what solitude is like, what what quiet time on our own is like, which is uh, interesting for her. 
you might get my chickens going as well at some stage. James, yeah, you were talking about the complexity of it and I guess then probability dictates the more complex the machine, the more things that can go wrong with it. But I also note uh, Rob's observation that it's nice to have a backup on the other side of your nose. Well, that's it, isn't it? We've got two eyes and they do great things together. Um, That's what gives us our our stereopsis, our depth perception. But yes, it's good to have a spare. And and it's really interesting because what you're describing there, Rob, sounds like a you know one of those one-off, um, very unlucky ischemic incidents, which they do occur. But you know, most people don't have those problems. Most people have diabetes-related eye problems or macular degeneration or cataract or glaucoma. They're kind of like the big, the big four. And all of those, if if you're watching, if you're getting them checked, um, all of those can either be, you know, slowed in the case of cataract, reversed with with surgery. Diabetes can be can be slowed, um, and even macular degeneration can be managed now pretty well for most people. So it's about saying, well, it's exactly that. You have got this super complex organ. Let's not wait till things get broken because it's impossible to fix them. As soon as there's something that comes up, get it seen too. There's been a theme that has emerged over, Rob, and my various conversations, and that is how we can map medical advancement across a range of disciplines. Is eye medicine getting better as well? Yeah, it's amazing. So when I trained um, four or 500 years ago, (laughs) the equipment that we were using then and, and compared to the equipment that we're now using, there are just so many things that we can now look at your eye. So if Rob came in to see me, you go in and say, I can't see so well. We can scan the retina non-invasively. It's just, you don't even see it. It's just a little infrared light. And we can see detail down to individual cells. And we can tell if, you know, there's a cell layer that's not functioning or if there's damage. So we can detect things so much better. And um, also in terms of those degenerative conditions like glaucoma, we can measure the thickness of of these nerves and these nerve fiber layers down to the micron level. Um, So rather than saying, oh, look, you know, we're going to have to watch you in a year and make some notes and maybe take a photo and detect a 15 or 20 micron change over five years and then say, oh, look, we should do something about it. You know, my patients come in and we can be detecting two micron changes over a year. Um, and if that happens regularly over, say, two or three six-month periods, then we can say, yeah, look, I think I've, I think I've found this disease right at its start. And so by watching, monitoring and using the technology we've got available, we can say to people, yeah, look, you've got the earliest form of glaucoma, so let's start treatment so that you don't lose any vision. Like you haven't even noticed that you've lost vision. Well, that's good. So we can get on top, get on the front foot and manage it. So you might live a whole life without any vision loss because we've caught it early. And that technology is um, it's, it's amazing. And the other thing that's um, really helpful is that we've got better treatments for things like macular degeneration and diabetes though those two conditions where once you'd say to people look sorry you've you've got macular degeneration there's not much we can do for you Um, now we say to people look you've got macular degeneration let's get you off to the surgeon because there are treatments available and again lots of studies have shown that pretty much the vision you send someone in to to get this treatment at is the vision that they can usually maintain for a, a three to five year year period 
So I guess to summarise, you know, we've got amazing advances in technology that help us diagnose problems early or, you know what, tell you that everything's okay. Um, it's not not all bad news. But really, the only way we can do it is if you come in um, regularly. So pop in every year or whenever it is that your optometrist would like you to see them and um, get yourself checked out. And it also probably makes me think about the need to kind of find someone you trust and like and stick with them just like you have your family doctor someone who knows you and knows your eyes and knows the rest of you it means that we're in a position to understand what's driving you and how we can help you um in the most efficient way that is great advice i just want to steal a little bit more free advice now this is more well maybe it's not cosmetic maybe it is more important than that but first of all different types of sunglasses i only bought some sunglasses at the weekend because i needed to update them and i have to say fashion was at the forefront of my mind as opposed to function is there anything we should know about different types of glasses so we're lucky in Australia. Um, so Australian standards mandate what a pair of sunglasses needs to do, what wavelengths it's got to block out and all the rest. So providing you're buying from a reputable dealer, whether it be an optometrist or you know, an optical supplier or chemist, you're doing fine. Make sure it's got that swing tag by law. It's got to have a swing tag that specifies the Australian standard. Because if you're buying, say, from a market or from, you know, oh, I remember when we could travel, from a cool little shop somewhere in Southeast Asia where we go to the market and get heaps of knockoff stuff. Often they're just dark glasses. They don't actually block out any UV light. So all you're doing is opening your pupil up and letting in more of that damaging UV light. So in Australia, as long as it's got a standard, you're good. But I do think in terms of covering up your eyes, you probably want a pair that wrap around nicely and really don't let stray light in around your eyes because there's no use having a cool pair of sunnies if they don't actually protect your eyes. Good advice. One last question. Contact lenses, are they any good at all? Who do they work for? And what percentage of people successfully have them? They do work, absolutely. Um, for people who have really high prescriptions, for people who don't want to wear glasses, and there are, there are lots of people who don't particularly want to wear glasses. But one of the difficulties with contacts is for people who need multifocal, so both distance and reading in their glasses, they'll need something like that for contact lenses as well. And there are actually heaps of solutions. I've got lots of patients who are really happy in their contacts for sport. I've got a, a bloke who's a, a boiler maker and um, he wears his contacts for welding because he didn't want to have his glasses underneath the hood because if they got out of whack or out of alignment, it was really annoying. So there are lots of people who um, benefit from them. It's probably only contact lens, probably three to three to 8% of the population is probably using contact lenses in Australia. So it's not that much, but definitely go and talk to an optometrist about it because they can be a real lifestyle changer. If you're going for a surf, if you're going for a, a swim and you don't want it going down the beach, um, going out on the boat, don't want to have prescription sunnies, then um, the contacts can be a real bonus. And of course, there is just one more category of glasses that even if you have 2020 super x-ray vision, you should seriously consider having in your life, especially if you're inside a shed, and that's safety glasses. Yeah, I, look, I almost considered leading off with this, lads, because the number of people who pop in and uh, say, oh, I was in that. And usually I work on a Thursday. I, 
So I'm an academic, but I still see patients, but usually on a Thursday. Uh, and a number of people would come in and say, oh, yeah, a couple of days ago or on the weekend, I was in the shed and doing this and doing that. And I've always been a bit uncomfortable since then. And you look in it and there's all, I've picked out all sorts of bits of metal and wood and plastic and all sorts. Um, so please wear safety glasses, whether they be the $5 ones. If you wear normal glasses and you do need glasses, then we can provide prescription safety glasses. They're actually not that expensive. They're probably the price of a good, a good tool. But if you're worried about your eyesight and you want to keep your eyes, um, it's a good idea. And a face shield doesn't hurt either. Um, so I've, I've had a, um, a piece of pearl explode on the lathe while I was turning and it was a face shield that stopped me having a, a nice uh, trip to the emergency room. Um, and equally, the number of times that I've had big things hit my safety glasses coming off the grinder as well. So please go and do that. And we can actually put in multifocal lenses. We can actually make them pretty convenient. They're not those big, ugly things anymore. They're quite comfortable as well. Yeah, well, I know that safety is both a priority and an occasional source of tension on sheds around Australia. So that is timely advice. James, really wonderful chat. As I say, we could devote a month to talking about nothing but this. It is such an important part of our life and so many different aspects to it. But we really appreciate you being on the Shed Wireless. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me, gents. James Armitage, Professor of Optometry, Optometry Course Director and Head of Vision Science at Deakin University's School of Medicine. And uh, Rob, thank you always. It's nice to actually learn that you're human. You had a small medical problem of your own because yes. I wasn't sure you were yes. there for a while. Oh, yes. Uh, no, I've got a number of defects. We won't go on all, all, all today, though. That will be in our best <laughs> on show. We'll do a top today, a Rob defect count. <laughs> Professor Rob McLaughlin, AM Medical Director, at Healthy Mail. Thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but thank you to everyone who continues to correspond about anything, anytime at theshedwireless at menshed.net. And while you're at it, make sure you find the Australian Men's Shed Association on Facebook for a great way to connect with other shedders, have a chat, get the goss first and fast. And I actually noticed that quite a few of the sheds were sharing their latest movements given the COVID situation in the last couple of weeks as well. So it is a valuable way. I know some of you are a bit resistant to it, but Facebook... It's a necessary evil in some ways, and I recommend uh, catching up with AMSA on there. As I mentioned at the head of the show, this is officially the last episode of 2020, but we have a nice surprise coming up in about two weeks from now, don't we, David? We do. We're going to have the, the Christmas special, and everybody in everyone who's you know, been a part of the, the team in putting all this together will get together and you know run through the highlights of what's been you know, I know everyone's saying it's been a remarkable year so but we'll be looking at all the 
you know, remarkable achievements of the Shed Wireless for, for the year and, and doing a bit of a year in review. And we'll do that. I think, Aaron, we better do that in the morning before we have the um, Christmas long lunch afterwards, mate. <laughs> I am genuinely excited because it is the first time we're still going to be virtual, but everyone is going to be in the one virtual room, whereas even though the Shed Wireless comes together as a single show, it's a series generally of individual conversations. So I'm excited that Professor Rob and Rip are going to be in the same room. That could be a challenge, mate. That could be a challenge. I'm glad you're on that side of the desk and not me, especially with Rip. I think you might have to have your finger on the mute button, mate. Otherwise, we might end up not just a Christmas special. We might end up with a four-hour epic. Yes, indeed. And it might not be out until the end of the financial year. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you to JPY and Danny Marks-Young, the brilliant boys of Belconnen Community Men's Shed, Professor Rob McLaughlin and James Armitage, Professor of Optometry and Optometry Course Director and Head of Vision Science at Deakin University School of Medicine, RIP. Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team and our ever-growing band of listeners and evangelists who are spreading the word about the Shed Wireless. Thank you all. See you for the special Christmas episode next. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle, or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates, even if they've never seen a shed, through email, newsletters, word of mouth. Ring a mate and give him the tip. Maybe your wife might even like it. We love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at mensshed.net or just head to the AMSA website, www.menshed.org and see what's going on with The Shed online while you're there. It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed.